0: Jay thanks so much for coming
1: on the show. Thank you thanks for having me. welcome to your audience.
0: Yeah, I mean look you got a crazy story of what's happened in the last couple of decades and uh, it, it's fascinating to to hear and just the, 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 the amount of times you've put your life at risk and to to share that story into the world. I want to go over kind of kind of the beginnings of your career as an undercover agent. But I'm more curious to know, how did you even decide, what motivated you to become an undercover agent?
1: Yeah, I landed in law enforcement uh, because of failure. To be quite honest with you, I had always dreamed and planned to be a professional football player. I played football in college, I had a successful college career, and uh, I've never had a plan B. I never had alternative or escape routes for my clients. I still don't. Um, so I got out of college and I thought I was going to play pro football and I went through all the testing combines and I realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't going to happen. You know, so my, my dreams crashed as a very young man, you know, at 21, 22 years old and my dreams crashed and I didn't know what else. I never thought about doing anything else. And so, um, at the time, as hokey as it sounds, the television show Miami Vice was very popular. This is the mid 80s. And as an audience, we had never seen a police show quite like that. Everything had been very procedural. Uh, cops in uniforms, driving squad cars, or detectives showing up at crime scenes with their notebooks and interviewing uh, witnesses and piecing together the puzzle. And then Miami Vice shows up, and Sonny Crockett's riding around South Beach with a Hugo Boss suit on and a shoulder rig, and driving a Ferrari Spider, and dealing with uh, cartel kingpins. And I was like, man, you know what? Man, I'm, I, I'm not going to be good enough to be a football player on the level I want to be, but I can do this. And so I started chasing a new playing.
0: Mm. Gotcha. And th- those were back then when people were trying to catch, um, like weed dealers, right? Wasn't was it? Was Was it like cocaine back in those days?
1: It was. It was. You know that, that the show was based, uh, you know, in South Florida, and so uh, Pablo's operations were really hot and heavy with the cocaine cowboys. Uh, I wasn't in South Florida. I was in Arizona, but our problem was evolving wasn't to the point that it is now with the Mexican cartels, uh, but it's still, it, I mean, it's, it's a, been a never-ending problem on the border here in Arizona with gun and drug traffic.
0: Right. So for, for people, I should just give you an intro of, of, of your background for people that don't know. So you've, you've done 27 years of, of doing, uh, of working with uh, as being a special agent undercover where you've put your life in danger of getting into uh, different situations whether it's, it's, it's gun buttering or, or getting into the Hell's Angels um, what are some other cases that you've been through that people can know you
1: about? Know, yeah, you know, I was an undercover agent for 27 years before I retired I was involved in over 500 undercover operations during my career so Everything from street corner dope to cartel dope. I mean, everything from uh, pea shooter Saturday night specials to shoulder launch rocket uh, launchers. Um, everything from PVC pipe bombs that some tweaker was making on his workbench in his garage up to servo activated remote control C4 devices, home invasion crews, uh, murder for hire schemes, playing a hitman, gang infiltrations. Um, what
0: were you doing for Murder for Hires? Like, what was your role there?
1: I played the role of a hitman. Uh, like, I had a, a kind of an ongoing persona over the time. I, was, I always played this kind of white trash, uh, gun running, debt collector hitman, and I could plug and play that. But it didn't matter who the suspect was, it didn't matter mm-hmm. if I was dealing with white collar criminals or traditional street gang members. I could always make that work. I could sell
0: Right. And your football background and being the way you've built obviously helps with being able to play that persona, I imagine.
1: I think it did. I think the the athletics, uh, like being involved in team sports, like having to sacrifice individually for the greater good, uh, the toughness that is built with football, um, I think those things all contributed uh, to... Ultimately, to what my
0: success be. Yeah, I think people, you know, from like a mainstream media perspective, they understand like movies, like Twenty One Jump Street, you know, with Shannon Tatum, and, and but that is nothing compared to the stuff that you've been through. So let's get to it because obviously the the most publicized um, undercover uh, stunt that you did was infiltrating the Hells Angels for two years. I think in two thousand one, you were the first ever person to, do, to kind of defeat the gang's multi-layered security. No one has been able to do it before. Why do you think uh, the, the, the ATF, the, the, the government agency, decided to assign you particularly um, into doing this case?
1: Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Uh, the case started, the, the, the concept of the case started because the Hells Angels in Arizona were Really operating violently and with impunity. There was just there wasn't a lot of oversight on them, and they had really uh, were going wild. Uh, what are some examples? Things. Oh, just uh, guns and drugs and murders and rapes and extortions and prostitution and arsons and you name it. You know that you you name the violent crime, they had fingers in it. Mm-hmm. Um, when the decision was made to uh, run a covert operation on them, I was approached to lead the undercover team. And to be quite honest, um, I was hesitant to do it because I told the case agent, I can name 15 people off the top of my head who will probably serve you better in the role that you need for this case. I was not a biker investigator. The things that I did uh, touched on the periphery of that world, but like, uh, there was uh, undercover agents and operatives all around the country who specialized in outlaw motorcycle games who I thought would probably do a better job on the case. But the case agent uh, convinced me to try. Um, I was never the best undercover operator. Uh, there's many that I know and admire who I feel are better at it than me. Um, I was always willing I was always willing to raise my hand and take on dangerous assignments or impossible assignments or assignments that other people wanted to pass on. I was always willing. I, I was never. Uh, I wasn't afraid to fail. I was afraid not to try.
0: Right, right. And you had a good amount of experience at this to be able to do something like this? I mean, would you say that being able to infiltrate in this case that was assigned to you is reserved for more of the senior undercover agents that, you know, because c- no one has infiltrated them before, right?
1: Yeah, that case uh, was not one that if you want to walk out of the academy and try to take that. Yeah. You know uh, You develop your skills and your expertise and your trade craft over time. When the opportunity for the Hells Angels case was presented to me, I already had 15 years of undercover work under my belt. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a head start and it probably still wasn't enough to be quite honest with you. I was still needed more. Um, but that's, yeah, it's definitely not a case that you would want to put a rookie or someone who had yet to develop like their comfort and confidence in their role. You wouldn't want to put them into that situation too quick. Yeah, so
0: how do you even get started in this? You get assigned this case, and what was the reasoning for them to, uh, for for someone to be on the on the inside? Is it was it for a a big mission that they were trying to stop? Uh Yeah.
1: Well, I think you know undercover work. I I don't think I know. Undercover work is really nothing more than a tool in an investigator's toolbox. There's all kinds of options available to a case agent to investigate from, like, the very most traditional techniques where you react to a crime scene. And there's, like, the CSI-type forensic investigation. There's historical investigations where you build uh, a history and a pattern of criminal activity for an individual or an organization. Um, there's surveillance, interviews, informants, wiretaps. Um, all those things are tools within an investigator's toolbox. Undercover work is just one of those tools. Yeah. So when it was decided that that would be the approach, in my mind, and I'm biased because I did it for so long, I think undercover work is the best tool because you're putting a living, breathing sworn law enforcement officer right next to your suspects so that person can see and hear and touch and feel and experience the crimes sometimes real time sometimes they can get in advance on what might be happening or they can backtrack and ask questions about what has happened the, the drama in it and why it's actually a dying art is because there's so much liability for the agencies uh, and for the departments. They're taking a living, breathing asset and putting it in harm's way. Yeah. So less and less people want to do it and less and less agencies are comfortable allowing people to do it.
0: Yeah, listen, for a good reason. I mean, particularly I imagine when cases like yours have come out to the public, I would imagine it's even harder. I mean, it's probably infinitely harder, and the the layers of security for these gang for gangs or any anything like that has, I imagine, increased exponentially after cases like this.
1: Well, there are so many publicized gang infiltrations and in undercover operations. They're like they're in the movies. They're in the television documentaries, um, and. It's, it, it is. I, I, would, uh, I think it's much harder to be an undercover agent or officer right now in today's world than it was for me. And it only gets harder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially with social media and, and the amount of information that's out there. Like it's, it's virtually impossible. But I see the benefit of it because there are certain things. I imagine the gap between what is heard in the media or what the front person of, let's say, the Hells Angels or whichever other gangs will tell you versus what, you know, the person that's actually has been there and you're able to have beers with them or you're able to really get to know that person is fundamentally different because even they may not even know, you know, the people that are actually telling the media may not even, you know, tell the you know, other people around it.
1: There's, there's fewer and fewer agents and officers and there's fewer and fewer departments and agencies that are willing to uh, take on undercover cases. Um, and, and I understand the reasons. I don't always agree with them, but I do understand the logic behind it. Right. Um, and so, and it's, it's just more and more difficult with every with every new story told. Is a new piece of information or intelligence for the criminal community to be on the lookout for.
0: Sure. Now, given the liability that comes with being able to infiltrate, you know, such a multi layered security um, gang like the Hell's Angels. Where your life is obviously at risk, right? I mean, I just imagine—I can't even imagine or fathom the things that could have happened if you were caught in the scene. Uh, and imagine it's not something you even want to, you know, imagine yourself. So what, so, what is the level of training and preparation? You know, not just learning about the ins and outs about. About what they're doing, but the psychological and the emotional training—is there anything around that, a procedure around that for you?
1: There is, and, and that's a huge—that's a good point, and it's a huge point. Is that the mindset? It starts with the mindset. Uh, undercover work is not for everybody, and you're no lesser of a lawman or woman or investigator if it's not for you. It's just not for everybody. Um, there's people that try it that don't like it. Um, there's people that try it and they're not good at it. Um, But then there's people that they try it, they're good at it, they love it, uh, and they continue to build their trade craft and their expertise. uh, Yeah.
0: So is there anything that the agency provides for you from a training perspective that helps you with uh, being confronted, let's say, or helps you become harder to read because I imagine the moment that you do something wrong if you're in a case and they corner you and you flinch at something that they say like that's it right like small things like that
1: yeah our training um, we get exposed to undercover operations at our academy we have like a small window of time within our training that uh, teaches new agents how undercover operations the mechanics of how they work it lets agents uh, kind of test themselves a little bit in a training environment to see if they have uh, an inclination an inclination for it. Um, the truth of it is is it's baby steps and it's trial by fire. There's there's continued training, but really you get out hopefully you land with a good training officer, a good agent or officer that can mentor you, mm-hmm. and and then you start small. You know, you don't go uh, and and do your first deal with Pablo Escobar or El Chapo. Your first deal is probably a bag deal, weed out in the park. Mm. <laughs> you start small and you start building those skills and building that rapport and gaining comfort and confidence in the persona that you're portraying and that you're playing. And then as you do it more and more, you uh, when you do something right. It, uh, it enhances your confidence and it, and it and it empowers you. And when you do things wrong and make mistakes, you have to be self-critical and say, now I'm not going to say or do that again because it doesn't work." hmm
0: hmm Now, what, what, from the moment that you said you were ready to trying to get into the gang, what is the procedure? Who do you contact, and what do you say? Like, what 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 are all of these? intricacies that people probably just don't know about?
1: Well, you know, in a lot of cases, the uh, informants are used. Uh, we also use cold knock techniques where we just self-introduce and undercover to an individual or to an organization. Um, but like, like in the Hells Angels case, you don't, like, go to a clubhouse and knock on the door and ask for an application. <laughs> yeah. um, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't right. work that way in any criminal organization. It takes time and it's like any relationship. You have to have exposure and time and then as you build your associations, you start to build friendships. And as you build friendships, you build trust. And as you build trust, then you build loyalty. And then sometimes if you go far enough, you actually build love, you find love in people. It's it, there's The human factor is very much a part of it. And so sometimes it goes faster than others. Uh, sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it's very tedious trying to find that love. There's no one set example or answer to that.
0: Now, in your particular case, how long did it take from the introduction to them officially accepting you into the group?
1: Well, from the very beginning, that there's various stages, like in a, in, a, in, a, in a biker thing. So it's not like you go from a cold outsider to all of a sudden you're a member. You go through various stages. Um, but that case, from beginning to end, lasted two years.
0: Two years. Oh, my God.
1: uh, Day in, day out, like 14, 16, 18-hour days, day after day, month after month, like having to stay within that lot.
0: And I don't understand what you were doing during that time. Is it, are you meeting with them every day and they're taking you through like ride-alongs and things without officially welcoming you into the group, but you're actually just, you know, doing what you would be?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, some of it you're just hanging out and you're getting to know people. Sometimes you're uh, involved in criminal activity with them. Sometimes you're just in conversation. Um, but it's 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 not, it was it was nonstop for me. Mm. It was nonstop.
0: It's almost like every day they would call you up. Let's meet here. We're gonna do this and that.
1: Yeah, and there's so many people. Like you know, in a in a large organization, uh, you're meeting with a lot of different people. So you're one person. If there's, let's say, there's at that time a hundred Hells Angels in Arizona, it takes a while to like meet and get to know and gain the trust of a hundred different potential suspects. Right. Some of which I was more successful with than others.
0: Sure. So is it like fraternities where there's chapters amongst different cities? You've got you know maybe a dozen or hundred members in each in each city, and then there's like a, a, a headquarters.
1: Uh, not so much a headquarters, but there are different groups, different charters, different chapters uh, in different places within the state, different places within the country. Yeah, um, hundreds, literally hundreds of chapters or charters scattered all over the place. That sure. Kind of all have their own personality. They they form their own little clique of uh, their brotherhood, and they develop their own personalities and their own styles and and what they do or don't do criminally mm-hmm. and like what they're uh just what the vibe is what they're about and they're you know they're all different but they're kind of all the same
0: sure yeah no i get it i, I totally get it. I, I wasn't i was part of a not to say this is the same, but I was certainly... Uh, I was a part of a fraternity where you've got certain values and the things that you've been taught and you eventually start to mold your character a little bit when you're around these people. But at the end of the day, these are individual human beings that have their own backgrounds, their own histories, their own insecurities, their own motivations. Um, and and I think that's an interesting point is like for for someone that is interested, like the typical person, what is their incentive? What is their motivation uh, for wanting to be in association like this, where obviously the downsides is, is like you could literally die at any moment because there's rival gangs and you're putting yourself in danger. So what is the upside from your perspective?
1: Well, you know, go back to the first part of that statement. Typically, like anybody uh, in the criminal community or otherwise, we're a reflection of the people that we surround ourselves with. Uh, Um, that's just for all of us in society. Um, I think not just for the Hells Angels, but for any criminal organization, for any gang. Typically the members they want to belong to that family. They want that sense of of being a part of something. Um it's not just gangs, it could be any club, it could be any organization. It's a sports team. Yeah. The same things fit for the sports team. Um, The same things fit in certain businesses. Um, People want to be a part of it, and so it's choices. What what are those choices that you make with your life? Like, who do you want to be? Who do you want to surround yourself with? People that uh, uh, chase gang life. You know, they want the security, the the protection, the loyalty, the brotherhood of the gang. Um, Sometimes the, the financial side that comes along with being a member of a gang, uh, the doors that are open, the power, the influence, the intimidation that sometimes comes with gangs in the criminal world. Mm -hmm. Um, But is it any different if you're you're a businessman and you're out there shopping for your job with Fortune 500 companies or Fortune 50 companies? They're looking like, who can I join up with that is going to be best for me? That's going to give me the most power,
0: the most influence. That's going to elevate
1: my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Solid.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree, and and I think people like to separate it completely, just because of obviously you know the the the, the violence and and the and the things that are incited from being an organization. But from an infrastructure perspective, it's not that much different, right?
1: Um, there's, there's a, uh, there's a hierarchy to it and it's, you know, it's like the angels hierarchy is not all that much unlike like a traditional organized crime hierarchy. When you think about it, the, the, the way that these are are structured, aren't structured all that much different than the military or a big business. Yeah. You know, you have a CEO, you have a kingpin, you have a shot call and then underneath him, are uh, street bosses and then underneath them are, you know, workers and the, the tier and the, the hierarchy and the flow chart of that isn't really all that different no matter what you're looking
0: at. Sure. Sure. Right. and I, Well, I guess the difference is that, you know, obviously with employees, you're getting a regular salary and you've got the security level without too much upset, of some some people get stocks and some people get options in the company you mentioned financial incentives amongst you know the you know a gang like the hell's angels how is that broken down what are the financial incentives is it strictly like a commission base where based on a specific you know deal that you do you get a commission of that you get a salary obviously it depends on the rankings but what's like kind of the overview of that
1: yeah, you're not uh, you're not paid or compensated to be a part of the gang. Um, now, does your membership within the gang or any gang does that open doors and create opportunities for whatever the level of crime or whatever the interest of crime you might be chasing is? Of course, it does. Mm. Um, there's no, uh, like, you're not getting paid, you're not drawing a salary. Actually, it's a one-way street with the money. Wherever you acquire, whatever you produce, gets kicked up, or at least portions of it get kicked up. Uh-huh. So you have people that are big producers and, you know, are, are reliable to, to be able to generate income. You get some that are slow as and they never do anything. They don't hold their weight, but it's not like they get fired.
0: Right, but how do they support themselves? Are these, are these, is it the typical member in the gang? Are they working full time jobs like at, at a corporate office and then in the nighttime they're, they're serving, you know, what, what the gangs is doing? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, I found that there was no typical member. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I've been around with, with guys that were literally on the verge of homelessness when like they were living on the, on the brink of homelessness. There was also guys that had nine to five jobs making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year like in a legitimate job with nice houses and families and wives and kids and everything in between.
0: Oh my God. And the idea is that it's all a secret, right? So those people that are getting hundreds and thousands of dollars in, let's say, a corporate setting, those people People that work for these companies, the companies don't know that they're part of Hells Angels. I imagine.
1: You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, uh, like these guys are not—they're uh, not shy about letting people know who they are or who they're associated with. Mm-hmm. You know, we had um, one uh, Hells Angel member that I ran around with was a uh, was an airline's pilot for uh, for. For a major commercial airline. He, I mean he was flying commercial jets oh my around god. The United States he was a engine.
0: Oh my god. I mean, isn't that shouldn't that be public if there's a targeted attack?
1: I would think that, that airline, uh, if they had done their due diligence and their background would have some issues with it. A member of an international organized crime syndicate flying yeah. their jets and putting hundreds of passengers on their plane. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't my business. That wasn't,
0: yeah. Of course not. Yeah.
1: That, like, that's like, I can't tell anybody how to run their company or their business or their life for that
0: For sure. For sure. Now, you mentioned obviously some of these guys have full time jobs or part time jobs, but obviously there's money to be made by doing certain activities as a member of. Uh, something like Hell's Angels, you know, maybe it's changed nowadays, uh, depending on you know the legalization of you know marijuana and all these different things. But what would you say is like the the the, the core activity that brings in the biggest bucks for uh, for for gangs today in America?
1: Most gangs in America it's narcotics. In narcotics. Our country has such an appetite for narcotics, and as long as we do, there is always going to be. Uh, someone to supply it. There's always going to be producers and traffickers and distributors and users. And um, until we can get our our use issues contained or I, I don't think it's possible or controlled, I think there's the appetite for narcotics is just too big. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't really matter what you legalize. You can legalize marijuana. There are some states that are kind of uh, legalized possession of hard drugs um, there's always going to be a black market there's always going to be someone out there that wants to undercut the legal market and get it to you a little cheaper a little better a little different um, that's never going to go away
0: yeah have you learned a little bit about, you know, as as someone that is supplying for two those two years and being an undercover agent, as someone on the other side of the table, what are some of the things that you've learned about kind of this issue that we have in America and the drug issues that we have? You know, is there have you have you learned anything around what are potential solutions if you were, you know, in, in, in someone of power after being on the supply side?
1: Well, I think it's, you know, it's absolutely devastating to um, societies, to cultures. I, I I would challenge anybody out there, I mean, anybody, your listeners or anybody else, to uh, like name someone who hasn't had narcotics, the, the, the world of illegal narcotics, touch their life somehow, whether it be... A friend or a family member who's locked up, who's currently active, or who's currently or maybe past was addicted. It's touched all of our lives. Everyone knows someone who's been impacted by it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's frustrating and it's sad, but it is the reality.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about people that had good-paying, full-time jobs that started with painkillers eventually ended up running out of money and because heroin is less expensive than painkillers, crazy, but it's 10 times more addictive. You're now getting people that had amazing lives that are just out in the streets that know that they're in a situation, but they just can't stop. Like a lot of these people are aware and they have all the capabilities of getting off the streets, but it's just, it's just, it's such a negative cycle.
1: There's, there's all kinds of uh, introductions into that world. Some are more innocent than others. Um, Someone has an injury and they're prescribed oxycontin and they don't uh, manage it right and don't handle it right. And they, they have a continued craving, uh, but aren't able to fulfill it anymore through a legal prescription. Yeah. Uh, So, so that's one. Greed is one. There's, there's so much money to be made. Greed, right. Entices people into that world. Um, it's you know there's there's so many different avenues into that uh, arena, into the narcotics arena. Um, some are, you know, actually very innocent. Um, you know, experimental um, for some people. You know, and there's a lot of drug dealers too, especially with hardcore drugs. Um, if you're interested. That first dose, that first hit, that first sample, it's on the house. Mm-hmm. But they only do this one because they know once you get it and once you like it and once you need it and you crave it, you're going to come back and then they got you.
0: Mm. Wow, interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a human psychology too, right? You're giving someone for something for free so the other person feels like they owe you something as well and so they'll come back to you as well.
1: Oh, and then if uh, like we'll just use uh, heroin and how addictive heroin is. If uh, if you're not a heroin addict, but you're curious about it and you decide you want to try it, you'll find someone out there to give you some for that first try. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but then but then you have to have it. And now that friendship is gone. And now it's like pay or play.
0: Yes. And did you find that you know being in there for two years in Hell's Angels that were you tempted were you actually consuming you know these hard narcotics and or or was it a culture there where it's like don't get high on your own supply like only supply you don't get high on it
1: yeah there was uh, there was narcotics around us uh, all different types um the whole time um i did not use drugs um for a lot of reasons uh for the moral ethical reasons there's a there's a very thick line between what you can and can't do as an undercover operative. Um, and uh, when I had the tradecraft and the expertise and the skill to, uh, to dodge those situations when I was confronted with
0: Got it. But wouldn't that feel fishy if everyone else in the gang is doing it, but you're decided not to? Isn't that actually a liability for you not to be able to do those things?
1: Yeah, I think that's a logical question, but I think in today's world, um, there were like what we, and what we know about uh, drug use and what it'll do to you, there's a lot of people that don't use drugs. There's a lot of gang members that don't use drugs. Right. I ran around with Hell's Angels and members of other gangs who, um, like, got their rest, uh, drank plenty of water, uh, ate protein seven eight times a day, went to the gym twice a day, like took immaculate care of themselves mm. physically, and they're members of a gang. Yeah. It's it's not like you join a gang and then all of a sudden you're automatically forced into drug use and drug abuse. It doesn't it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah. This is what I should wanted to go into because obviously there is probably a very misconception about what people think of people that are in gangs. You've been in there for two years you've, I imagine you've developed real relationships you've, built, you've developed genuine friendships and people that you have loved and, and, and really developed that, that connection with um, number one like h- how difficult was it for knowing that it was a temporary situation and do you still keep in touch with any of these people after this?
1: Well the, the human factor of our work is very difficult uh, and it's, it's it's primitive, it's very simple, is that you spend time with people and you do develop friendships. And the friendships, although they're based behind a lie, like the actual chemistry of them is real. And so you might be running around with someone who's maybe doing things they shouldn't be doing, committing crimes, uh, sometimes violent crimes, sometimes vicious vile crimes. In that process, you spend time with them when you're with them enough where you actually see elements of their life where they're not doing that. Um, and then along the way, like, like any group of people, whether it be kids, school, college, work, business, socially, your profession, um, you meet people that you like. You meet some people you don't like. Yeah. Um, if you put a, like you mentioned here, fraternity, um, you put 50 fraternity brothers in a fraternity house, those, their own little clips aren't going to form there. It's not like there's 50 guys who think and act and live their lives universally the same. Um, you might all be part of that group or that club, but people go their own ways, make their own decisions. And in that, you find people that you grow closer to and that you like more than others.
0: Yeah. It's no different. Is so different. definitely definitely yeah they're 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 it's such a humans they're just humans right it's it's such a complicated humans are so complicated right and, and you could be looking at someone who is doing something that is you know illegal obviously from 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 a regulation or law perspective, but you know at the same time they could be you know taking care of their daughters they could take taking care of their their their, their wives and they have you know, enormous love for their friends, and they, you know, they're, they're a good person in that aspect. It's just that this aspect, they're not. You know, I think all of us are in some versions of those of 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 this of this complicated layer of of good and bad.
1: Well, and so many times, uh just in real life, uh, like we don't know what's going on with another person. You might think you do. But everybody's got secrets, everybody's got problems, everybody's dealing with their own stress and tension and drama. Uh, maybe you know what it is, maybe you don't
0: know what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is it, would you say that's the biggest misconception about what the mainstream media or what most people think when they think about, you know, gang members or people that are inside gangs is that they think they're just like one profile of people, but at the same time, they're they're really just regular beings. They have full-time jobs. Some people are, you know... Yeah,
1: I think you know, as society, as the public, we tend to uh, uh, follow stereotypes and paint a group of people all with the same brush based on uh, an event, a story. You know what we're, what information we're given. It's the same thing happens to police officers. The same thing happens to to lawmen. Yeah, um, you know um, the. the the law enforcement community has been demonized by politicians, by the media, um, based on some real tragic, wrong, uh, corrupt, sometimes criminal events mm. that are that are legitimate occurrences in our world and that are unexcusable. But uh some people typically want to label every law as the same as someone who's uh, gone outside of the rules or the lines or the law. That's not true. That's not the case. But how do you fight it? What do you do about that other than just try to, you know, as a cop, try to do your job the best you can every day? Um, Can't fight it. Can't change that. People are going to look at you as a cop and decide, that you're bad, or that you're evil, or that you're corrupt, or that you're racist, or that you're looking for an opportunity to kill people—they're going to view you like that, and all you do is try to do your job the best you can. Yeah, and, it's and, complicated. Uh, it's, it's very complicated.
0: So, talk to me about the aftermath. So, you—you've you, been in the organization for two years, and you've developed these—you know those loving relationships with—with. With the people that are inside these the the, the, the gangs, what what happened after? Did, did, did the agency just tell you, listen, like we've got all the information we need, we need you to get out? Is that what happened?
1: That's that's pretty much how any um, operation ends, though, or any, especially in the long term. There's always there's got to be an end game somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when a decision is made that enough evidence. Or information has been acquired to either make arrests, seek indictments, you know, go forward with prosecutions. At some point, someone decides enough is enough. Um, and that's, you know, that's, there's, there's some satisfaction and success of having, um, uh, completed a, a successful investigation. There's also, um, it, it's hard because like i never uh personally i never set out to destroy anybody's life to ruin anybody's life i never got satisfaction out of sending people to prison i was there my job was to get next to violent crime to see and hear what was going on experience at times gather that information deliver it to prosecutors um who would then present that information before judges and juries to judge these people. Um, I didn't I like I never mocked people that I arrested or had a successful investigation on. Um, many times uh on arrest day, on raid day, I was dealing with them on the very worst day of their life. Um they didn't need uh, or deserve any additional humiliation for that. Uh, people make mistakes. People do things wrong. Um, sometimes they get caught. And when you do, um, for our actions and decisions, um, there's consequences.
0: And is that what happened, that these people that you've developed these genuine relationships with, did you have to turn on many of them in the end?
1: Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's part of the, um, the psychology of it. That's difficult as an undercover operator because you do develop uh, friendships and affection, especially over long-term basis. Wow! But you build those, you build that trust and loyalty all behind the lie, and you go into the relationship knowing ahead of time that you're going to betray, that God, God doesn't make us that way. God doesn't build us that way to, like, to start relationships. And and from the point before they even start to know that you're gonna ruin that relationship, you're gonna betray it. Um uh, you're gonna tell people's dirty secrets, you're gonna hang their, their dirty laundry out for everyone to see. Um God doesn't build us that way um, unless you're a sociopath, and that's yeah, you know, that's 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 part of it. That's that's You know, if you can't justify that to yourself, if you can't justify that what you're doing is being done, the deceptions you're using are being done for the greater good, then that's that's not the role you're going to play in an investigation.
0: Yeah, particularly the role that you're playing, because in order to get the information that you need, I imagine the people that you had to get closest to. Are the people that you ended up having to get? Because basically, you're saying like you need information, right? In terms of uh, being able to know more about the organization. So you actually had to get closer and spend more time and build those relationships with the people that you knew had that information. So it's almost like yeah, a Yeah, you know, right? Sure.
1: You can't catch sharks with minnows. You don't go fishing for a shark with a minnow. You have to get information. You have to be uh, attractive bait. Wow. And sometimes you have to be uh, their equal or at least uh, convince them yeah. that you are their equal.
0: That's insane. And how hard is it to resign your membership? Was it at all fishy that all of a sudden for two years you said, listen, like, I don't want to be part of a a member like this? Is it kind of like the leaving the Scientology Church or the Mormon Church where they call you every single day and they're trying to chase you down? Or is it respectful? Is it just like, listen, again, it's not for everyone?
1: Uh, like in the, uh, the actual legitimate membership in, in many gangs, um, you know, there's some have a blood in, blood out. Like once you're in, you're in forever mm-hmm. and you can never leave. Some allow uh, members to retire out and, and retire out in good standing. Some are kicked out if they violate rules and protocols and bylaws. As a, as an agent, as an undercover agent, I reminded myself every day that, um, you know, whose team I was on, that I was, you know, I was a federal agent and that, uh, I was living a false persona and that on any given day, if my lie was found to have a crack in it, like, these are the kind of people that are going to say, you know, okay, we figured out that you've been deceiving us for a couple of years. We prefer that you don't come around here anymore. That's mm-hmm. not how we're going to handle it. We're going to put a baseball bat on the back of your head.
0: Yes. So, and I'll get to that, the aftermath of that. But throughout this process, knowing that you had to have this exit plan, you know it was temporary and you knew that afterwards there's going to be severe consequences and, and, and people that are going to be threatening your life, Did you communicate this with your family or friends and people closest to you throughout these two years and give them the details of what you're involved in so that, you know, in some ways a lot of people don't, right? So that they can completely protect themselves. They don't even see their family members depending on the severity of the undercover. What was the plan in your case, being able to involve your people?
1: Yeah, my family was uh, conceptually aware of what I was doing, but they weren't aware of the intimate details, um, and that was by design. I didn't tell them everything that I was doing um, or what I was seeing or experiencing because there was no upside of that. Mm-hmm. There's no that there, there was no need for them to know, and there was no benefit for them to know. Uh, in the end, uh, I put a huge amount of battle damage on my family. Uh, for the job I did, and for the way I did it. Um, in hindsight, that is my biggest regret. It's my biggest failure. Uh, it's my biggest humiliation. Carries the greatest amount of guilt and shame for me personally, is that uh, my family made huge sacrifices for me during the course of my career to allow me to work and to do the things I love. And I took that for granted uh, for a long time. And to be honest with you, the people that loved me the most and that I was most loyal to, or that were most loyal to me, I treated the worst. And I, uh, that, that's a very unflattering statement to make, but it's a truthful statement.
0: Why do you think you treated them the worst?
1: Uh, Because I was selfish. I made decisions for myself, what I wanted to do for my career based on where I wanted to go. I didn't uh, consider the repercussions on them or how it would affect them, my wife and my kids. Um, When things eventually did break that, pain and suffering and risk and fear and terror that I had brought into their lives was very much undeserved by them.
0: Is there a part of you that regrets taking that specific role as an undercover agent for, for, for infiltrating this?
1: Uh, yeah, there's parts of it. Um, uh, not because of the moral or ethical uh, objectives of it or the investigation of violent crime or trying to serve my community, serve a greater good, but um, the after effects of what it did to my family, you know, have been devastating. And I spend every day I can trying to do better and trying to fix those things. There's some things I'll never fix, I'll, I'll just never be able to get some of those things right.
0: Yeah, is there a part of you that you know, after all this happened? Well, I guess I'm curious to know, like, what, what happened now that the gang knows you and they know exactly. You know, I don't know how much was 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 the truth, or was a lot of it was undercover. Of course, is that still a part of your daily life? Is the fear of knowing what can happen to you, knowing after everything that happened?
1: Yeah, there, you know, when the, when my true identity was exposed, you know, through the court reports and, and the legal discovery. Um, you know, there were contracts issued against me. Uh, They were were being marketed and shopped to other gangs. The Hells Angels held contracts, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood, the MS-13, L.A. Street gangs, 18th Street. Um, Other uh, individuals were looking for opportunities to cash in on the contract. Um, There were threats against my family, threats to kidnap my kids, threats to gang rape my wife. Um, In 2008, my house was burned to the ground. Oh my god um, so the threats they're real um uh, and but you can't you can't do this job and expect anything less than that um you know I was associating and healing with the final people who were very rough and had lived rough lives. They're not going to stop doing that. they're not going to be someone different than who I had known them to be.
0: So that'll never end, you think, for the rest of your life? You feel?
1: I I think with time, uh, it it settles down a little bit. Uh, Will they ever forgive me? No. Will there ever be hatred for me? Yes. Um, I don't look for a problem. I don't want a problem. I'll do what I can to avoid problems. Um, But I don't. I don't live in fear because if I live in fear, they want. But I do live with caution because I'm personally aware of what they're capable of and what they're what they're able and willing to do. That they're they're the masters of violence and intimidation.
0: I'm curious to know, like, knowing all that, you know, why are you talking to me? Why are you writing books? Why are you going on interviews and why are you publicizing this information, knowing the real threats of what their potential of
1: I've got two answers for that. Part of it is that there is no way to hide. There is in today's world. There is no way to hide. Maybe if you're a CIA operative and they can completely wash who you are out uh, of the system and hide you. Maybe, um, maybe if you enter the witness security program, which there is no witness security program for law enforcement officers. For there isn't. informants and witnesses. There's no mechanism to no formal mechanism like WITSEC to protect cops. That's crazy. Um, so, you know, I was left on my own. So part of it, like writing my book, was to hide in plain sight. Was to, like, expose the story, get it out there, hopefully cause some pause in the minds of people that intended harm, on me or my family. And uh, the second element is, is, like, I don't solicit these opportunities. I didn't call you, ask you if, you, if I could be on your on your podcast so I can tell my story. You
0: contacted me. Totally. No, I'm not saying me specifically. I'm talking more about your decision to really go on the offense, right? Of publicizing your book, talking about these stories. Um, And I guess in some ways what you're saying is instead of hiding, because there is no way to hide, you're going on the offense of being able to share as much as possible so that in some ways that actually will could protect, protect you even further.
1: Yeah, you know, to some extent and I, like and uh, i try to be honest and truthful and transparent and authentic with it. I'm like I'm not out to embarrass anybody. Yeah. I'm not trying to humiliate anybody or um uh, I don't have any burning grudge for any anybody, any of the people that intended harm for me or did bad things to me. I don't live my life that way. Yeah. Uh, they might not feel the same way about me, I'm sure they don't. But that's their choice to me.
0: Mm. as a final question jay um you know you've been through so much and 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 you know obviously we're we're so thankful for the services that you've provided um and for your time today what would you say just given all the things that you've been through or some of the lessons that you've learned about life maybe about yourself that some of our audience members can take away from
1: yeah, I think personally, like what I've learned, uh, many times the hard way, like I'm a person who wisdom always came to me right after I needed, mm. right after I needed to be smart about something is when I was smart. It was too late. I learned everything the hard way. But I think we learn as people, we learn humility by being humiliated. We learn graciousness by being taken advantage of. Uh, sometimes we learn those lessons the hard way. I think, as a culture, and I think it's never been more evident than it is today, um, we don't listen to each other. We are unwilling to change our minds when someone makes a compelling argument to us, when someone makes a compelling statement to us. We've become very set in our positions, and we don't want to change our mind. We don't want to have. We don't want to hear what other people's opinions or positions are that are unlike ours. Um, if we can, just, if we can learn to uh, treat each other and take care of each other in a positive way, look out for each other, protect each other, uh, help correct each other when we're going down a bad path, um, that's that's you know that's that's maybe too optimistic. I think that's what God would like for us. You know, I I look at myself and I have literally made a million mistakes in my life. I've done a million things wrong, uh, but through God and my wife and my kids and my friends, I've been given a million and one second chances, and I'm very grateful for that. And I do the best I can to take advantage of that million and one first second chance. So I'm trying to get some things right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, listen, Jay, I, I think those are that's a powerful way to to close this off. I mean, I couldn't thank you enough for your time. And appreciate you for, for sharing your story just on behalf of all the people that are listening. It's, it's a very brave thing that you're that you've done and that you're continuing to do. And I think there's a lot of life lessons, as you mentioned, that people can learn from from reading your book. No Angel, uh, which is your first and original book, and then your most recent book, Catching Hell. We'll link all of that on of the of the way to get that and your website as well. Um, thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate your, your time.
1: It can, be well, i
0: Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable and if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Chao.